you don't have to go to the Amazon mm -hmm. to make the next brand new species identification or learn about the newest range expansion. I think cities like Los Angeles that have such a diversity of habitat and can accommodate so many species due to our mild Mediterranean climate just are just hubs for wildlife research, wildlife discovery. And just a few years ago, it was thought to be devoid of nature based on what our perception of what a habitat is and isn't. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever lived in an ecosystem. So that's everybody. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today's episode is part two of Urban Ecology with Miguel Ordignana, whose voice you just heard. So if you haven't heard part one, hit pause and go back to that episode because it's about urban carnivores, including P-22, the mountain lion Miguel discovered living in Griffith Park in Los Angeles, and it covers the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing and a whole bunch more. So go do that and then come back here when you're all caught up. Okay, did you listen to part one? Awesome. In today's episode, we're still talking urban ecology, but that is such a broad topic that this episode covers totally different information than the last one, including bats, the often surprising presence of wildlife and diversity of wildlife in our cities, and ways to be more equitable and inclusive with the humans in our cities, particularly when discussing issues around outdoor access and conservation. I also want to remind you that this is the final episode in season two of Golden State Naturalist, and after this, I'll be taking a break to record more interviews and to start to prepare for season three. There will be an update episode that releases somewhere in the middle of the break, so make sure you're following the show to hear that update and to find out about all the exciting things I'm working on for season three. Also, you're not going to want to miss that update episode because there's going to be so much more than just updates, and I'm so, so excited about it. During the break, you can stay in touch with me by following me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram and TikTok, where I'll be sharing my outdoor adventures and some ecological tidbits along the way. My website is goldenstatenaturalist.com, and if you click on the store tab, you can find tank tops and t-shirts for the summer, or sweatshirts and long sleeves for this cold, rainy weather that is still happening in a lot of parts of the state. But honestly, I would go with the tank top because it's supposed to be hot again in like five days. I also want to say thank you to all of the people supporting the show on Patreon for making this work possible. I could not do it without you. And if you're not a patron yet, you can join for as little as $4 a month. There will be some exciting opportunities soon to send me your questions for some very cool guests and topics coming up in season three. You can find me at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's patreon.com slash Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. But now let's get to the episode. Miguel Ordignana is still an incredible environmental educator, wildlife biologist, and community science manager for the Natural History Museum of LA County. So without further ado, let's hear from Miguel Ordignana on Golden State Naturalist. going to dive right back in here. But to remind you of the setting, it was a hot day in August and Miguel and I had just hiked into Griffith Park and gotten an amazing view of LA laid out below the hills where we stood. We ducked off the trail to get some refuge from the sun in the shade of a few oak trees. 
Also, we were sitting on the ground and Miguel was definitely bitten by a few ants and our legs went numb repeatedly. So I'm thinking maybe I should invest in some camping chairs for interviews. The next thing I wanted to ask you Mm -hmm. about is bats. Like you've Mm -hmm. done a ton of work with bats too. So like how do bats adapt to an urban environment as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So after discovering P22, it was really inspirational for me. So his story went, went viral after National Geographic photographer Steve Winter took this iconic image of him under the Hollywood sign and it really allowed people to think differently about nature in the city because now that there's this image of a mountain lion of this basically symbol of nature under a symbol of urbanization Mm -hmm. that these two things are not completely separate. The nature doesn't end where the concrete begins as people a lot of times thought. And now people have to respect that even in a place that is associated with celebrities and traffic and everything you think about big cities is also a very important place for nature. So it allows us to kind of expand the narrative about LA and cities. And because of P22 story, we're able to bring attention to all these other important species and ecosystems that call LA home. And a lot of that's because of our diversity of habitat here that we have available for species. And I mean, a lot of people brag about LA as being one of those places you can go skiing in the morning and after a couple hours drive, you can go surfing. And yes, that's a cool thing to brag about to tourists, but it's also something that speaks to how unique LA is and this ecosystem is. So with that said, that offers a lot of opportunities for a lot of biodiversity of animals that are migratory, animals that are introduced to Los Angeles, animals that have been native to this area for multiple generations, and some of those include bats. And so I think for me, P22 story allowed kind of people to start paying attention to urban nature in general. So his story for me was really inspirational from a professional and a personal standpoint. Mm -hmm. So from a professional standpoint, as a person who's academically trained to design projects and to study wildlife a certain way, it really kind of inspired me to to look in other places. If I can find a mountain lion in the middle of the city in a place where experts kind of discounted as a place for, for wildlife or as for mountain lions especially, and then subsequently finding bobcats in Elysian Park where the Dodgers play and gray foxes in Elysian Park. Uh, multiple populations of gray foxes in the Baldwin Hills in areas that, again, experts, because they're going off of what's been found in more suitable habitat and ecology and home ranges and territories under those situations, they think, okay, that's smaller than that. They can't do that. They can't survive that. They can't adapt to that. It's just too much. We know much. that they need 200 miles. There's no way yeah. it's going to cut it. We're not yeah. even going to look. Yeah, and so... Yeah. And that's and that kind of trickles into like since we can't study animals or important research questions in the city, then people that live in the city aren't really people that we need to really invest in mm. connecting with, mm-hmm. connecting to the conservation movement, because the people that are really important are the people living on the edges of these habitats and the suburbs and more affluent areas that mm. that really interact with ecosystems where the wildlife really are. And that's unfortunate. And it's really kind of had an impact on the composition of who is invited to the table when we have discussions about conservation, about wildlife, about human wildlife coexistence, and a very homogeneous group of people. And so now P22 
story and, and similar ones are really showing that like, yeah, we have wildlife worth paying attention to and ecosystems worth paying attention to right here in the middle of the city, right in the middle of the urban core. And so how that inspired me is like, it's worthwhile looking for wildlife where other people are choosing not to mm -hmm. and taking a chance on communities and involving communities that have been historically excluded from this type of work. And so as a person who almost fell through the cracks due to a lack of environmental education, I really embrace this idea of not using the same approach, interacting with communities that have been historically excluded from this work because it's not just the right thing to do, the ethical thing to do, but it's also can really lead to some really great discoveries, like the discovery of a mountain lion, the discovery of a new species of lizard in the middle of, of the city that was only thought to live in outside of California. And then all those other discoveries I made, a bobcat in the middle of this tiny park in Northeast Los Angeles that was thought to be too small for a bobcat population. Elysian Park, another park thought to be too small for a bobcat population. And then that inspired my work even overseas and looking for jaguars in places that mm. were extinct for 30 years and was too built up to be suitable jaguar habitat. Finding jaguars there. I just went down the deepest rabbit hole and I am resurfacing only to get you and bring you with me. Okay, so I wanted to see some camera trap footage from Miguel's work in Nicaragua with jaguars, so I started Googling, and I found some beautiful footage that he captured of two young male jaguars walking right past the camera. It was an amazing shot, and then I kept looking to see what else I could find, and I came across a Washington Post article saying that researchers sometimes lure jaguars to camera traps using, you are never going to guess it, are you ready? Okay, they use Calvin Klein's obsession for men. And the jaguars come up and rub their scent on top of the cologne. Miguel is quoted in this Washington Post article saying that the scent has civetone and vanilla extract, and that civetone is a chemical compound derived from the scent glands of civets, smallish nocturnal cat-like critters native to the Asian and African tropics. So then, of course, I had to see what a civet looks like, and I looked it up, and they do look a little bit like cats, but they're not cats and are actually more closely related to mongoose, mongooses, which they look more like to me. But they're very cute and have long bodies and long tails and big rounded ears. And as I was looking at them, I kept seeing pictures of them eating coffee berries. And then it dawned on me that these are the so-called cats that the whole cat poop coffee trend comes from. If you haven't heard of this, apparently there are people in this world with $100 to spend on a single cup of coffee, and they want the beans to have been pooped out by a rainforest animal, which who am I to judge? But the problem is that when the coffee became popular, people started trapping these animals and keeping them in terrible conditions and force feeding them coffee berries. And I watched a very sad video so that you don't have to, but please just don't buy this coffee. The good news is that there are wildlife professionals out there finding some of these civets and setting them free, but people will keep trapping them if there's a market for this coffee. So instead of cat poop coffee, buy coffee that guarantees a fair price to farmers like the Awesome Coffee Club or a coffee co-op that's farmer owned like Pachamama. Neither of those brands is paying me to say that and I don't have any relationship with either of them. But buying ethical coffee makes a real difference in people and animals' lives, so buying from one of these brands or another ethical brand like them is fantastic. 
Also, I want you to know that I looked it up and NPR tells me that Calvin Klein uses synthetic civitone. So you don't have to stop buying Obsession unless you're worried about attracting jaguars. Do you see how deep this rabbit hole went? Okay, I promise we're actually going to talk about bats. Here we go. And then bats. So then, and community science. So bats, because I had that interest based on my work experience in the desert, I was like, hey, this is a really portable piece of technology, just like a camera trap. And I could use this technology and put it anywhere I want. And what's unique about bats is that unlike the carnivores that I was more used to studying, they're the only mammals that can fly. Mm -hmm. And so they have the potential to be in any neighborhood. And so to that point, like I was kind of testing the waters of doing mammal community science um, because there wasn't a lot of it because most mammals are nocturnal, not really community science friendly Mm -hmm. animals because people would have to stay out at night to study Mm -hmm. study them or use expensive technology. And so I thought of an idea to like make mammals more accessible, add that as an option on the menu of research projects to get involved in. Because I know a lot of people like mammals because they're charismatic and interesting and, and mysterious. And what I gravitated towards about bats, just like carnivores, is that they're a controversial species and also potentially very ubiquitous throughout LA. Mm-hmm. Despite, again, what bat biologists assumed, which was that Yeah, there's bats probably in most places, but they're probably just one or two species within L.A. because we find more species richness, diversity in natural open spaces where you expect to find bats. And so, again, the city, again, was being discounted even with bats, a species that is potentially everywhere and can fly and has these (laughs) abilities to be in any neighborhood And so I thought it was a missed opportunity. And so at first I started a project looking at squirrels because that was one of the only other mammals that people have the potential to see. One of the only diurnal animals, or it means animal active during the day, that someone can see on their lunch break Mm -hmm. and take a photo and submit to us and turn that photo into data point using iNaturalist, which is a free app that people can use to connect with science projects and participate in community science work. And so then bats was my next step after that squirrel project was successful and resonated with people. I was like, hey, what else is out there? What other mammal can potentially be anywhere? And so that's how it started, really. Just me having that lucky opportunity just to to learn about that technology, that technology advancing quickly, just like camera trap technology advanced quickly and then pitching it to the museum and them being receptive to the idea. And I tried out, they bought a detector for the nature garden space, which is three and a half acres of of garden space in our gardens that was just built in 2013. And just seeing what I got there. And if I had success, trying to convince us to go further than that. Mm -hmm. And then I also simultaneously had a bat detector in Griffith Park and partnered with the zoo to to look for bats because it was a safe place to keep the detector. And... We found a bunch of species, including a species that was thought to be extinct from L.A. for about 10 years, called the Western Mastiff bat. It's the biggest bat in North America, has a wingspan of almost two feet wide. What? And, yeah. And, (laughs) and And it lives in L.A., and a lot of people don't know that. No. And... Again, the bat experts thought it was gone from L.A. because of uh, how urban it was. And this bat 
in particular needs high roosting spots because it has this narrow wing to body ratio and so it has this has to glide basically mm -hmm. it has to have a high takeoff point and glide down to drink water to feed and so that means it also needs these long bodies of water and just on the distance here there's the LA River. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people discount the LA River as this, this drainage ditch or as this concrete useless waterway. Mm -hmm. And it's actually habitat and it's actually a corridor and actually a really important resource for riparian specialist species like the Eumomyotis and potentially the Western Massive Bat that only can use long bodies of water to mm -hmm. drink. And so we also have these artificial lakes throughout LA and our local parks that weren't built for bats, but are helping a lot of them survive. And so I saw a lot of potential after kind of making those discoveries in Griffith Park and then documenting bats in our nature gardens. Mm -hmm. um, we not only documented bats within the first two weeks, we eventually documented a species multiple times that was very urban sensitive. That was a migratory bat that would travel from southern Canada down to Central America and back every year. And it was thought to skip over LA because it was just too urbanized. And this particular species only roosts in trees or foliage. It sort of find it at the nature gardens mm. was very inspirational for a lot of people because it's a new garden. We didn't really know what to expect other than, yeah, it would attract native insects and pollinators and things like that. But to be a resource for such an urban sensitive bat like the Western red bat, and it being such a small space, it wasn't an Angeles forest. It wasn't a mm -hmm. uh, Griffith Park. It was a tiny little garden created from nothing and is now a potential stopping point or resting spot at least for this bat that has specific needs and so for people that are like ah, oh, i can't i wish i could give more to wildlife you have a lot to give if you just plant native plants that that support native insects that that bats are adapt to eating that if you even have an apartment complex and plant certain plants that are attracting those insects or telling your landlord or if you're the property owner not trimming your trees during times when bats may be vulnerable and not able to fly as as little pups i think those are just little things that people have control over that they didn't know about in the words of naomi fraga from the california native plant episode of this podcast native plants are the building blocks for all terrestrial ecosystems so if you haven't heard it yet go check out her episode and go check out the episode on growing native plants from seed with Julia Michaels, because both of those go into detail about why native plants are so important, and they support amazing creatures like bats, who then do other things that support us as humans and support the rest of the food web. But the first step is to know that bats are here, and bats are useful. Bats are important to have in the ecosystem, just like those carnivores. They keep our ecosystem in balance. All of the bats here in, in the LA area only eat insects. They eat multiple species of mosquitoes. So it's really important to have them around for that reason and also for the agriculture industry, which is a little bit outside of LA, but But everybody's got to eat. Everybody's got to eat. <laughs> and people go to the grocery store yeah. and it's, they get the impact there. Sure. And the farmers are saving a lot of money by not having to purchase expensive pesticide to get rid of crop pests. Instead, they're able to support bat communities that are taking care of those crop pests for them, saving them billions of dollars every year. Wow. And also keeping our ecosystem health if you're not spraying with pesticide. So I think there's a lot of services, ecological services that bats provide that a lot of people don't think about. Mm -hmm. 
and, and people um, are scared of bats too yeah like yeah. they find them really scary like what do you say to people to help them not be so scared of bats <laughs> i really what i love about controversial species like carnivores and bats is that they're conversation starters uh -huh. and so even if they're coming up from a place of fear they're willing to talk about it because they want to express how afraid they are and why they're afraid of them mm -hmm. and it's an opportunity for me to tell them the truth and that's backed up by science about how how uncommon it is for bats to have rabies and that none of them have had covid here in in north america that they don't like getting tangled in your hair they're not <laughs> aggressive we do not have vampire bats here in the la area they're they're in mexico and further south Okay, so let's talk about rabies for a second. I recently got my whole series of rabies vaccines just because there's a good chance that someday I'll do an episode that puts me in close contact with wild animals. And we should always take these kinds of risks seriously and follow the advice of our physicians, which I am not, and no part of this is medical advice. But just how likely is a person to encounter a bat that's carrying rabies? So according to the Washington State Health Department, less than 1% of wild bats have rabies. And of course, I looked up the CDC page on human rabies, and the page says that there are only between one and three cases of rabies reported in humans annually in the entire United States. Between 2009 and 2019, there were 25 cases of human rabies in the U.S., and these are all listed on the CDC's website. Of those 25 cases, 13 of them were caused by bats, Eight by dogs, although one says dog mongoose, and I don't know what that means, but this is a surprisingly mongoose-heavy episode. Anyway, another three were caused by raccoons and one unknown. And seven of those cases were acquired outside of the U.S. and its territories. So bats are extremely unlikely to be carrying rabies, are even less likely to give it to you and I, and are doing amazing work for all of us by eating mosquitoes that are much more likely to spread diseases to humans than bats are. But this isn't the only reason bats are cool. And that they're just really incredible species that are a lot like us. They're amazing mothers, for instance. They take really good care of their pups. They only have like a couple pups a year. And bat, the bats are long-lived. They can, some of them can live up to 30 to 40 years. And a lot of people think, oh, they're just these rats with wings. And when people say that, it's not just like discounting them and because they're ugly. They also think that they're disposable when they say things like that. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of people, oh, there's so many rats, they have like a rabbit, like they have a lot of babies, a lot of them don't survive and that's okay because they have so many babies mm -hmm. a year. And so they have that same association with all small mammals, including bats, when bats are, have this kind of different life history. They're not rodents. They're not rodents. Okay, so I think a lot of people think of bats as flying mice or rats because they're small and they're mammals, but rodents are defined by their continuously growing incisors, those two cute little buck teeth we associate them with, which of course bats don't have because they're not out there gnawing on things. California bats are generally out there eating insects, and as Miguel mentioned, they don't reproduce nearly as quickly as the rats and mice we sometimes inaccurately lump them together with, which means they're a lot more vulnerable to population decline than those animals. I'll link a page about bat pregnancy and motherhood from Bat Conservation International in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. So there's there's a lot to educate about, mm -hmm. and I think all these little facts and tidbits of information go a long way, and convincing people 
to not necessarily embrace them fully, but at least tolerate them. Right. And that's all I ask is that people understand that we need to make space for all these animals, even if we're a little bit intimidated by them or grossed out by them. They have an important role in their, these ecosystems mm -hmm. and a really huge value. And they deserve to be here. Again, just like the mountain lion and, and other species that were here since Ice Age, the bats have been here since Ice Age and mm -hmm. beyond that. There, we have bats in our museum, uh, a replica fossil of one that is millions and millions of years old. Mm. So old that it was flying around the heads of dinosaurs. Oh, wow. And based on the fossil, it had almost the same characteristics as bats today. Wow. So they're so perfectly designed. Why improve on perfection, um, man? They're that, doing great, right? Yeah. Anyway, so it's really amazing species that, again, have been here way longer than us, have an important role to play. And it was so great to start that a study and inspire others to get involved because it's paid off in so many different ways. Mm. It's really sent that message that you can do this rigorous science and you can do um, really thoughtful community engagement that resonates with a lot of audiences, including historically excluded audiences, and have a really deep impact and not have to compromise anything. And I think that, and as you continue to be open to feedback from the community, not just the scientific experts, it's gonna make that project that much stronger every single time. And that's been the case for this project. So it started off with, yeah, there's just these random little detectors here and there and getting really cool discoveries. And then me pitching for a project, a community science project called the Backyard Bat Survey, mm -hmm. where I got funding from Disney to purchase a bunch of bat detectors. From Disney? Disney, yeah. They have a conservation fund called the Disney Conservation Fund. And they provide millions of dollars to uh, conservation projects all over the world. And previous to that, they didn't really have many urban projects they were supporting. They were, mm. A lot of times they were supporting a lot of projects that supported species that were featured in a lot of their movies. And so they kind of, yeah, took a chance on, on us and I'm happy they did. And we were able to kind of take our project to the next level. Mm. When we were piloting it, we were just moving like the same four detectors around different, different yards just to see if this was a possibility to, to go and do bat research deeper within urb the urban core of LA. We need to go to a quick break, but when we come back, learn what Miguel found once he was able to use the extra funding he secured to learn more about urban bats and hear more about community engagement. All that in just a moment. Okay, back to Miguel's findings with the urban bats. Remember, he had just secured funding from Disney for his work. That extra funding allowed us to not only sample more sites at one time, but sample each site for an entire year to look at seasonal oh, wow. patterns and also compare a backyard to a local park that has a lake that has more suitable habitat, maybe an urban wildlife oasis for these bats. And so it's been really eye-opening for the scientific community, for the local community that are making these discoveries alongside us. It's not like these biologists are parachuting in, extracting data and leaving without giving any benefit or communicating with the local community and, and hearing their feedback. I think it's a, it's a new model that is long overdue and more inclusive, and I'm proud to continue to adapt it. And I'm also really honest that I wish I could have started this project in a different way. I wish I could have co-created this project from the very beginning with the community mm. because it allows it to connect with 
community members a lot deeper, a lot quicker, and has a more lasting impact from the very beginning. But we have invested in, in making adaptations to the project, expanding it in ways that are being responsive to the feedback and the recommendations of the public. So for instance, we have expanded to not just do acoustic surveys of bats, just to see what bats are flying over what neighborhoods, but also to learn about where they're roosting and where they're not, and what species are using certain type of roosts versus others. And bringing these community members into that process as well, because a lot of them just wanted to see a bat. A lot of them wanted to know where they live so that they can take a stance on, and have an impact from a conservation standpoint. There's only so much value an acoustic recording can provide to the conservation of bats. It can let you know and bring attention to their presence in an area and the amount of species in one type of ecosystem versus another within urban areas. But that doesn't allow you to, to take conservation action on a physical place. Mm -hmm. If there's a park, for instance, that is a really hot spot for bats or a tree or a bridge or a building that, that is under threat of destruction or development, but you know is a bat roost. That is a conservation, a really tangible action that the community members have been wanting to have, mm -hmm. but we couldn't offer that because we didn't know where these bats were roosting, or at least we didn't communicating with the public about that. Mm -hmm. And so now we're bringing this information that has been kind of being gathered here and there by biologists and getting the community involved, making them aware of not just bats, but what their needs are to survive in the city. And also the community wanted more especially communities that aren't typically involved in the environmental effort want their kids and people that look like them to have more opportunities to get their foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And so how are people getting involved? Are they going out and making observations? Yeah, so the way we're getting people involved is for one, if, if we're in their region that year that we're focusing on, so we move from region to region every year and, and sample in different areas to kind of like hyper kind of study a certain area. Mm -hmm. We ask people to volunteer their property, whether it's an apartment complex, a school, a library, a boys and girls club, their home for a year. So that's one way in and then we kind of share um, what we find as the, the project progresses and we recognize them for their work. And then we have this other aspect, the roost counts. And so we, ha we invite people to come out with us and count bats as they emerge from mm. these roosts and help us inventory what bats are, how many bats are flying in and out of these particular roosts, how that changes between June and August. So June is when, if they're maternity roosts, the moms are mostly the ones that are flying. And, but still there's babies in the roosts at that point. They're just not able to fly. And then in August, the babies are then volant able to fly. And so you're counting not just the moms, but also the, the babies that weren't able to fly in June. And so we asked the public to help us because there's a lot of sites. It's a great opportunity to connect with local nature. And it's, it's different just seeing bats in person, right? It's just another experience that you can't mimic. And to offer the community that opportunity is, is really special. And, and also showing people the different types of neighborhoods these roosts are living. It's not just right in the foothills or in the mountains or whatever. It's, it's also in the middle of the city. And so bringing attention to that is important. But the acoustic stuff has been really impactful because even talking about P22 is like, if, we, if I had, if this was an event in Watts and this is a real example, we could talk about P22 and it like, oh, that's cool. Like I know where Hollywood is. I know mm -hmm. where that is. 
But if I tell them like, hey, I've detected this bat, bat that they see on a map at your local high school mm -hmm. that's just a block from where we're at right now, they're like, oh, yeah, that, my mom went there or I'm going to go there next year. I walked past there on my way to school. So like it's just another, a deeper connection people get. Or like if they have the detector at their school, like that's a community center. That's a place where people have been gathering for generations uh, or a library, for instance. And previous to that, they had no relationship with the museum or scientists. Mm -hmm. And now because I'm in their trusted space mm -hmm. and we've been invited in, now we have a relationship that we haven't had ever. And the museum has been in South L.A., for over a hundred years. Wow. And there are South LA communities that had zero relationship with the museum. And it's because we weren't as proactive about our engagement. And being proactive is vital. There are so many obstacles, so many barriers facing some communities that a lot of us are fortunate enough to not really have to worry about in our own lives, but that we need to think about if we want to be inclusive. What are the barriers that you see here? like? Oh, it costs this much to see this extra exhibit. Oh, it costs this much for parking. Your hours are this. Or a beach, like how far the beaches are. What's the public transportation situation like to get to the beach or to our local mountains? Those are all barriers that a lot of times we don't think about because they're not barriers for some people. Mm -hmm. And I have a car and I know the quickest way to get here and there and and so you just have to kind of hear all these perspectives even after you're inviting them and taking them to these places because you don't want it to be just a one and done experience sure. you want mm -hmm. them to then be like talking about it to their family and not only talking about it to their family but in a way that is makes it seem accessible as an accessible idea as as a routine place to go and experience and that it's a place for them and not just other people and you can only absorb so much on one visit, yes, right? Like there's so exactly, much to see, it's exactly, wild. You have to go back. Exactly. We kind of talked about this, but this is maybe a, a different perspective on something you already talked about, mm -hmm. which is I think a lot of people think of cities as being, this is a human space and the wilderness mm -hmm. as being, this is either a recreation space or an animal space, right? Like that's, that's where animals live. This is where humans live. Mm -hmm. And I think like if you could wave a magic wand and be like, here's how I would change that paradigm. Like, what would you shift in that? I would shift that paradigm by, I don't know, I think for the first step for me, and I think this is something that the museum and some other institutions have been trying, is that like not assuming so much about what resonates for certain audiences, what's a barrier, what isn't a barrier, and have listening sessions. Mm -hmm. I think the solution of listening to these communities that we've poorly engaged in the past is an important first step. And not only listen, but also listen in a way that is followed up by action. Because I think, I'm not saying that all parks have to be multi-use, but I think like for instance, so we have a few like of these unique parks in LA, middle of LA, that are like areas that people can go for on a walk and see like native plants in the middle of like really urban areas, but they don't allow soccer. They don't allow mm -hmm. other types of recreation. And instead of telling people like, oh yeah, this park's not for soccer or baseball. You gotta go to this other park. like not just like redirecting people and in a friendly way, which is nice, but going a step further and figuring out what 
is there at this park that's a natural park for that person as well like what else can we offer or that's already here that would resonate with this person yeah maybe it's not on a day they can't maybe not wouldn't use it on a day that they want to play ball but they might come back because they want to take a mental break they want to get some fresh air a little bit more quiet not a bunch of kids kicking balls flying around they want to show their kids some local birds that use this park and not other parks maybe there's an activity or an event or an art class a routine art activity that they can engage the public in and i don't know there's just i think there's a really important value in and yes, like preservation, because we only have so much open space left. But at the same time, sharing people how these open spaces are valuable to everybody, regardless of your background, mm -hmm. because you're going to continue to be sending that message that this park or this type of open space is only for certain types of people who like to use certain nature in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of different ways to engage in nature and art is one of them like i said and mental health activities but we need to kind of introduce those ideas those non-traditional ideas it's not just a hike it's mm -hmm. not just a plant id walk or bird, right. <laughs> bird walk there's other things to do in nature and i think we need to be more upfront about that um, and that's too maybe where those listening sessions can come in right yeah, like how exactly. would you want to use this space exactly. what would you want to do here but also put parameters around that like mm -hmm. if you're never going to allow them to put a slide or or a swing set in there don't introduce the listening session in a way like hey we're open to anything any right, idea right. <laughs> because then they're like you're going to get shot they're going to get shot down if that's what their that's suggestion a great point. is i think that's something that where listening sessions can go wrong. That's a really yeah. good point. That sounds like the voice of experience right there. It is. It is. It's and fun. also, like, making sure that, like, there's something actionable behind mm -hmm. it. Like, yes, you can make that situation comfortable and fun for the, mm -hmm. for the person sharing that time with you. But at the same time, you want to um, not only be transparent about, like, hey, like, thanks for sharing, like, but we don't have the resource to do much about what you said, mm -hmm. but at least ask them about things that they can actually have an impact on, that they can actually go to the museum or go to another program and see their changes or their recommendations being put into action. Mm -hmm. I think there can be a mix of both. Things that they can comment on that the museum really can't help with or whatever the institution is can't help with, but there's other things you need to ask them about that actually can have an impact so that they can be willing to share their experiences again and being willing to work with the museum again or whatever the institution is. And so I think that's just a learning process. I think we're all using a growth mindset or trying to, which is a really great sign. But even through that process, we can't use that as our excuse to be continuing harm just because, oh, we're still learning. Oh, we're still growing. Sorry about that. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, sorry about that. Like that, that adds up. And I think we need to grow in a way that that minimizes harm. And um, I it's think it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. Yeah. Right. Our intention is not an excuse for our impact. Mm -hmm. We need to be accountable for our impact regardless of our intent and learn from those mistakes and not repeat those mistakes again, especially with the same communities. Mm. So it, 
I think that's something. And then our community science office, for example, is developing a advisory council that includes basically help audit ourselves, basically use these external perspectives of, yes, those like really engaged community scientists as one of those representatives, someone who's environmental justice advocate that doesn't necessarily do community science, someone that is a little bit older, someone that's um, part of the indigenous community, someone that is a formal educator, someone that is a, a high school aged or early college aged individual. I mean, we're not going to ever cover every single perspective, mm-hmm. but I think the more we engage communities that we're poorly serving mm-hmm. uh, or we want to serve better, the better. Because if we hear the perspectives of, of the same people every time and how to design an open space or how to regulate recreation, we're only going to continue to serve the same people and exclude the same people mm-hmm. every single time. And not the, only the parks that we have here today, but the parks that we established in the future. So it's essential that we be inclusive as we design our outdoor spaces and have conversations around conservation and community science. I see this work as part of the way we begin to make better stewardship choices so that we can move forward positively and do things that are simultaneously better for humans and wildlife. And a message we're not used to hearing is that humans can be a powerful force for good in our ecosystems. But what does that actually look like? How do we help the wildlife living close to where most of us live in cities? People can help urban wildlife by just talking about it more. A lot of it is just bringing attention to wildlife, their needs, their existence, and bringing more people into conversations about wildlife and their conservation. And I mean, a good example is an event which is called Wildlife to Watts, and it's getting community members in Watts to learn about local nature, engage in local nature, learn about ways to support local nature. If you live in or around the city of LA or good old Watts, or if you'll be in the area in October, you can go to Wildlife to Watts yourself. This year's Wildlife to Watts event will be on Saturday, October 14th. And then the very next weekend on Sunday, October 22nd will be P22 Day. So you have two options or you can go to both. Also, the National Wildlife Federation created a mural of P22 in the city of Watts. And we walk to that mural and talk about and celebrate conservation heroes that are from that community that don't have expertise in in biology and in nonprofit management or anything Mm -hmm. like that, but are having a, a really deep impact that in a way that no other conservationist could. And one of those examples is this his individual named Warren Dixon, who is a local hip hop artist, but co-founded a a hip-hop group that raps about local environmental issues and how people can take action Mm. and does it in a way that's engaging that's that's relevant to a lot of the community members that are in his neighborhood and within his circles but also using a local graffiti artist to do a mural of p22 Mm. a celebrated style in la where we have murals of kobe bryant or tupac shakur all over la and now there's one of p22 in the same style as something that we could celebrate as well and not have to do it in a separate way do it how in a way that that resonates with the communities and meets communities where they're at 
And that means going to Watts and doing these community events and not, and yes, busing people out to open spaces is great, but they also need to know about nature living right under their nose. They can't just be told about wildlife in Griffith Park and in Santa Monica Mounds. That's great and inspiring, but they also need to know about wildlife that are in Watts, like the bats that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And because that's when the personal and local pride kicks in and they're able to have the privilege of seeing their neighborhoods differently. Yes, seeing it how they've always been seeing it and taking pride in Watts for all the reasons they've been taking pride in Watts before, but also seeing this other aspect of Watts or wherever that includes nature and what's mm. really special there regarding nature and the natural history of the area. And I think that's that's what everybody deserves and that opportunity. Whether they are all going to be conservation activists, that's probably not going to be the case anywhere. Mm -hmm. But I think at least giving them the opportunity and the invitation is something that we haven't been doing. And it's the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad we're starting to do that. And I think that's one of the secrets to success. I think people seeing that not only is this a this campaign, the Save LA Cougars campaign to build the bridge is not just to build a bridge for mountain lions, but it's also to connect communities. Mm -hmm. And when people are sending in their money, they're not just seeing this really basic campaign just focused on mountain lions and protecting them, but it's also showing how this campaign has gone to local elementary schools and local industrial communities and historically excluded communities and letting them know about this and why it's relevant to them that we're going further than the typical conservation program and how everybody should be doing that. And hopefully this is a sign that other conservation campaigns should use a more strategic and authentic model with regards to community engagement, not just do it as an add-on, but as something that is essential for the success of this conservation program. And not just thinking that, oh, I'm not gonna go to these communities because they're not gonna give, they don't have much money to give to this campaign. But that's the only reason to reach out to communities, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's a humanitarian thing. It's a social justice thing. And we need to be more understanding of those intersections between wildlife conservation and social justice. Mm -hmm. And if we continue to ignore it, we're not going to have success. And as this, these cities get more and more diverse, you're going to be excluding the majority, not the minority. You're going to mm -hmm. be excluding the majority. And that's just not a model for success by any means. Yeah, I love that. That's so important. I'm really glad to hear that that has been improving. <laughs> yes, yes. Gradually, at least. Yeah, and even the the museum that I work at, like I, I grew up going there as a little boy, mm -hmm. being inspired by walking through the African mammal halls. And but it sent me a message. They sent me a message that wildlife is awesome. There are certain species out there that are worth conserving. And even those dioramas are so good that I'd mentally transport myself to those places. Mm -hmm. But it still made that goal of being a wildlife biologist or conservationist a far-reaching goal because all these places are depicted in places really far away from where I live and where I grew up and the wildlife in LA or in similar places were not being celebrated in my own museum here in Los Angeles and now there's an exhibit dedicated to an LA story, a LA wildlife hero, right in our, the same museum. I see little kids that look just like me going and doing scavenger hunts in this exhibit and taking a lot of pride in that. 
I'm really looking forward in 20 years to hearing an interview with a scientist who just made some wonderful discovery or helped us solve some big problem, and that person telling the story of seeing this exhibit in the Natural History Museum as a little kid and describing how that was part of how they became interested in nature and science. Right now, that award-winning scientist is a little baby Angelino, maybe from a neighborhood that's been overlooked and discounted historically as a habitat for wildlife. And they're just walking around wide-eyed in the museum, taking it all in. And I think that makes me hopeful for the future because your goal, and especially me as a parent, is like that they see their world differently. They have that basic opportunity to see nature how it should be seen, and which is should be seen everywhere, even in their bathroom where there's a little spider in the <laughs> corner of our bathroom. That's nature, mm-hmm. and and that we all have have a role to play, and that that this field, that this movement, is for everybody and that you don't have to have a certain degree, you have to certain background to, to be successful in this field. And yeah, again, again, as a father, just to create an easier path forward for my children and all the children out there, because a lot of the barriers that I was faced with are unnecessary. And those include even when I'm in my park, I've been celebrated for my work in this park, but I've also been confronted by police and and rangers because of the way I look that I don't look like a typical naturalist or biologist and even seen as a threat because of how I'm perceived and so I think even that difference is huge right like it's not only about feeling comfortable but for some people it could be a life or death situation absolutely and a safety issue yeah, yeah so I, I think bringing attention to those barriers and and doing our best to collectively and eliminate them and address them head on even if it means awkward conversations and and fighting through some some fragility and defensiveness i think it's it's key and it's gonna ensure the safety of of my kids and a lot of kids out there that that deserve to feel comfortable in nature and safe in nature and yeah hopefully that that's our legacy and that's my one of my legacy or goals of my legacy as well I love that. I think I, I think that it's so good you're out there doing it because the more press you get, the more it's like this is what a conservationist looks like, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's chipping away at it. I mean, these go faster, but at least it's uh, it's progress. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. The National Science Foundation released a report at the beginning of this year showing that, quote, more women as well as Black, Hispanic, American Indian, and Alaska Native people collectively worked in STEM jobs over the past decade, diversifying that workforce, and in earning more degrees in science and engineering fields at all levels compared to previous years. So that's fantastic news. But it also goes on to say that the groups mentioned are still underrepresented in these fields. So we're getting places, but we still have more work to do. Last question. Sure. What about this work that you're doing with urban ecology, bats, squirrels, P22, <laughs> all of these cool projects? Like, what about being out here and doing all this still either blows your mind or just takes your breath away? It takes my breath away that... I mean, because of all the missed opportunity in the past of not taking urban open spaces or urban ecosystems seriously, there's so much right under our nose. And as you kind of familiarize yourself with all the types of ecosystems from soil to, to insect communities, um, reptile amphibian communities, there's 
so much opportunity to making incredibly impactful discoveries. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in itself is motivation enough that we haven't really tapped into enough and we're just starting to. There's kids making discoveries that scientists dream about just because they're being told to look mm -hmm. for the first time in an area that has been ignored for wildlife research. And I think that blows my mind is how easy it is almost, I, I would say easy, to make really cool wildlife discoveries in the middle of the city. You don't have to go to the Amazon <laughs> to make the next brand new species identification or learn about the newest range expansion. I think cities like Los Angeles that have such a diversity of habitat and can accommodate so many species due to our mild Mediterranean climate just are just hubs for wildlife research, wildlife discovery. And just a few years ago, it was thought to be devoid of nature based on what our perception of what a habitat is and isn't. So I think that that is really great and, and how powerful it is when we listen to the community and we take their lead. And I, I mean, my goal is to to do more co-created work or even do take a back seat, take a big bite of humble pie and just <laughs> just take the follow the lead of of a local organization that has been doing environmental justice work for years. Mm -hmm. And in the moment that I'm lucky enough to be invited into a conversation on a project that they develop, that they see that I'm relevant with regards to my expertise to help with, I think that's going to be a really really moving moment for me because I think that's that's how we're going to keep this going is that like it's not just up to one group of people to keep conservation going but for more and more people to feel like conservation is for them it's something that they only can be involved in but they something that can lead themselves mm -hmm. and I just like that idea because so many more communities are going to be involved that weren't involved before. Miguel, thank you so much for taking the time to come out here with me and, My and pleasure. share all your knowledge. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming out here. It's, it's a hot day, but, um, but it's been fun. Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> when we spend our days in our houses or apartments or driving in our cars and we hear the noise of traffic on the street and airplanes flying overhead, when we look up at night and don't see any stars, it's easy to think we're not in nature, that we're not connected to the natural world. But nothing could be further from the truth. As soon as we start to look a little bit more closely, we start to see the connections, the ways we're tied to this planet and everything on it. We start to see wildlife living right alongside us, and maybe even the things we can do to welcome and support these creatures. And if we keep looking, we start to realize that our cities might just be the most surprising wilderness of all. I want to give a big thank you to Miguel Ordeñana for taking the time out of his weekend to hike Griffith Park and sit down in a bunch of pokey oak leaves with me for this interview. I learned so much and hope that lots of people are hearing this and are as inspired by Miguel's work as I am. If you want to know more about the work Miguel is doing and some more fantastic community science projects with the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, check out nhm.org. Right now, they've even got a project that involves using a mineral called zeolite 
to remove lead from the soil in East LA where a battery recycling plant used to be. Miguel told me about this project when we talked in August, and the LA Times recently published a great article about it, which I'll link in the show notes. Please go read this because it's an incredible story, but one of the things Miguel really likes about it is the way it shows community members that they can get great jobs in areas like mineral sciences and then come back home and help their own communities. And there are also a bunch more great projects listed on nhm.org, so definitely check out the website. Okay, at the end of every episode, I always share something from my week. And this week, I actually have two things because it was a big week for me. So one is that I hiked Mount Diablo with Obi Kaufman, the author of the California Field Atlas, which you should definitely go check out if you haven't yet. And on our hike, the wildflowers and the conversation were both amazing. So stay tuned for that episode in season three, but go see some wildflowers now if you can. Just don't step on them. And the other thing from my week is that I quit my job, which might be crazy. We're going to find out. I'm finishing out the school year and then I'm going to try to make it doing a variety of side hustles and freelance work that I haven't totally figured out yet, but that I'm hoping will involve some public speaking, some outdoor education, some consulting, some writing, and of course the podcast. So anyway, wish me luck. This is a big leap for me. I'll keep you posted on how this is all progressing when I check in for the season break. But for now, please send good vibes and thoughts of native wildflowers and oak trees and possibly also leads for any of the things I mentioned if you have them. I also just want to say thank you so much for being here for season two. Thank you for the beautiful support you've shown me every step of the way. I've gotten so many kind messages this season from listeners telling me about the impact the show is having on their lives, and each and every one of those is something I treasure. So thank you so much. And I can't wait to bring you more amazing guests and more learning that will help you connect with the natural world all around you in season three. Okay, I'll catch you on the mid-break update. Until then, get outside and stay curious. And I'll see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song and the Creative Commons license in the show notes.